right, hey guys, welcome to Palm Sunday. Uh, it's great to have you guys. If you guys are home and you guys are thinking like, how packed is the church? I mean, it's, you know, at this case, y'all might as well just come. You know, we have the whole courtyard open for you. Um, but if you're still at home and you're still kind of like uh, worried about it, it's okay. Uh, I just want to let you know there is a place here for you guys to come and worship with us. And there is a, uh, plenty of room. And they are, everyone is kind of distancing themselves, so it's good to go. Um, yeah, man, this is Passion Week. If you guys do not know, if you're at home and you're wondering, hey, what's Palm Sunday about, PT? Palm Sunday is the week, it's the beginning of Passion Week where God, Jesus Christ, rode into Jerusalem as king with full authority, with full power and conviction, able to enact justice upon his people, but instead uses his authority, uses his power to give justice by doing what? Sacrificing himself in our place. And that's the beauty of our Lord and Savior. And that's what we worship and celebrate this week as we think about the justice that we deserve and yet was poured upon our Savior instead, right? Um, and this ties into what we'll be talking today in our message, which is about justice. You know, we've been in this series called uh, The Line That Unites Us. And this series has been very instructional in tone. And it was really developed out of the heart and desire that, you know what, last year in 2020, there was a lot of verbiage that was going on within the church. I'm not even trying to, like, communicate what's going on outside the church, but within the church, there was a divisive conversation and a myopic approach to the way we see certain topics and certain issues that, that instead of uniting and walking the line and what the Scripture tells us, we decided to be divisive and exclusive in our approach. Right? And these voices within the community, just not, not just our church, but the community of, of, of church as a whole, right? we see this lack of, of, of grace and gospel being uh, shared. And so the line that unites us is a series that, that seeks to remind us that Jesus, ultimately our Lord and Savior, is the one that unites all of us together. And if that is the case, if Jesus is who he says he is, then we are able as believers within the community of God, within the body of God, to strongly disagree with each other over things and yet bend over backwards to make sure we maintain those relationships still. Instead of actually disagreeing and then separating, we're able to connect and to, to, to argue, to, to, to um, have these conversations and yet still build this relationship together. And we saw a couple weeks ago that if Jesus is the line that unites us, then the, the conversation about sexuality, that oftentimes within the church, we make it as the one condemning sin that knocks everyone out from heaven, right? We learn that the reality is sexuality is just one facet of the issue. The issue is, the primary idol is the wanting and the willingness to disobey or wanting to be your own God, that you yourself believe that you know the wisdom, the word, the truth, and how to navigate your world better than the word of God teaches you. And you use sexuality as the litmus test of whether you're going to be saved or not. But sexuality is not what's going to save you. We learn that within the church, oftentimes we use, we use, we, 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 we approach sexuality in such a narrow way that instead of bringing in God's people, we separate and exclude. Okay. We talked about that if Jesus is the threat that unites us in the issue of pro-life, it's, it's an issue not just about whether we, we, we agree with a policy that's going on in our, in, our, in our nation, in our culture, but it's an issue of whether we understand that humanity was made in the image of God, uniquely made in the image of God, that humanity has a unique relationship to God, has a unique relationship to its created order, and has a unique relationship to itself. That in this unique relationship, God calls us as people to honor his image. That the image not, was not only when you were born, but the image becomes when during conception, even before conception, right? And this image and this pro-life idea that, that, that has dominated the church and becomes this one policy uh, voting issue that we had here in, in our community is, is so myopic. Because pro-life in the eyes of God, he is pro-life, but he's not just about keeping the baby alive. But the question is, after the baby is alive, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to care for the baby's life? The pro-life is about caring for the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, the inmates, 
the weak, the helpless, the poor. It's making sure that the child actually has the ability to live a life that's not worse than death. But oftentimes within the church, instead of seeing the bigger picture and contextualizing it, we want to just narrow it in into one topic. See, the line that unites us ought to show us that Jesus Christ is that line. And we ought to see the world according to the way he sees it in his scripture. So today I want to end this series with um, the picture of justice because that's a big one that was out last year, right? The story of justice, social justice that was proclaimed and rallied against uh, in, in, our, in our nation, okay? And, and I want to kind of just talk about the, 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 the conversations we see online oftentimes among believers, among people, is that things like, you know, if you don't see it my way, then you're part of the problem. Then instead of actually working together and having a conversation together, we begin to just kind of deciding factor to, you know, separate and, you know what, don't bother me or I'd rather not talk to you about it or, you know what, uh, just don't, don't bother me, okay? And usually, here's, here's the thing, usually justice in our culture has taken such a reductionist view, meaning, meaning that it's either seen one way or the other. Either you're a conservative and you see justice specifically this way and it should be administered this way, or you're a progressive and you see justice to be administered this way and only this way. Reducing it down to these left, right, or kind of whatever middle ground that you have in between. And yet the biblical picture that I want to share with you today, I feel like this. Here's the thing about Christians. We shouldn't ignore that either way because why? There's truth. There's real, actual truth that should not be ignored on either side. But at the same time, I believe that we shouldn't align ourselves either with it because the biblical approach to justice is so much more comprehensive and it's so much more nuanced. And so when we begin to reduce our focus of what justice ought to look like, either right or left or somewhere in the middle, we aren't seeing the picture the way God sees it. And we're not dealing with the real problem of the human condition. And I believe biblical justice... Guys, today, if, you, if you're going to follow, pay attention. It is, it is instructional in turn, so you might, you might, I might lose you here and there, but just kind of focus with me. But if we are to see the picture of biblical justice, can I tell you something? It gives you a greater comprehensive view of how to care and love. There's a resource within Christianity, within the word of God, within God's character himself, that gives us a powerful approach to deal with justice. All right? That's where I'm going at today. You guys follow? Okay, so let's talk about justice. All right, so there's a lot of passages I'm going to go with you guys, so don't, don't, don't get lost, okay? And then if you're in the background, Junior, just uh, listen to my voice as I throw out these verses, okay? So the first thing we understand, there's three things I want to share with you guys today. The God of justice, the biblical facets of justice, and how do we respond to justice, okay? The God of justice, the biblical facets of justice, and how we... How are we to live out this biblical justice in this world? Okay, the first thing, the God of justice. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter, it's good to see all you guys here, by the way. It's really good. Loving all your faces. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4. I have a sister from my old church visiting us today from New York. All right, she's a... She's somewhere around here. Uh, I was telling her a story about how my old church is uh, closing down, AKPC. They're selling it to a developer. Great, right? Hey, you guys, let's raise some money. Let's buy the church, okay? It's a really nice place. That's a gym. We should love it. Think about it, okay? All we need is about a couple million, okay? Think about it. Think about it. Don't say no. All right. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 4, okay? The God of justice. Check this out. He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Justice is rooted in God's character. Justice in the Bible is not a bunch of bullet points and not a bunch of commandments that you're called to live by. To live in justice is to understand that this is God's actual character, Right? It is the outworking of that character that tells us what perfect justice looks like. See, God's justice is both retribution and reparation. You guys know that? That God's justice is both retribution and reparation. It not only punishes evil doings, but it also restores those who are victims of the evil, of the injustice. 
Okay? Go to Exodus chapter 23. His restorative justice. This is what, this is what God said to his people. Right? In his restorative justice, this is what he desires. 23 verses 6 to 9. Exodus chapter 23 verses 6 to 9. This is what he says. 23 verses 6 to 9. It says this. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with false charge. Do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who seize and twist the words of the righteous. Do not oppress the aliens. You yourselves know how it feels to be aliens, because you were aliens in Egypt. See, God's restorative justice, his character, tells us that God is against what? He's against perverting justice to the poor. He's against slaying the innocent and the righteous. He's against accepting bribes. He's against oppressing the aliens and later on the widows and the orphans. God's justice is against the injustice that has been placed upon groups who have been victims of people who have oppressed them. At the same time, God's justice is uh, retribution. His retribution nature shows that he will punish those who have acted unjustly towards others. Go to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Acts 17. Check this out. 17, verses 30 to 31. This is what the Bible says. And, you know, you're asking, why are we flipping through so many passages, PT? Because I was going to talk about the picture of justice. I want you to see the whole gamut of Scripture in regards to this, because it's not just one passage that's going to give you this picture of justice. God's justice is seen all throughout Scripture, right? And so here we see his, uh, his, his retribution nature when it comes to justice. Acts chapter 17, verse 30, 31, the Bible says this. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. The Bible tells us as judge of the earth, the Bible says he will give everyone what they justly deserve. There will be a day where all wrongs will be made right. God will enact his retribution. So we see that in the character of God himself is this restorative justice and this retribution of justice, that God is going to punish those who've done wrong, but he's also going to restore those who have been wronged. That is his character. And so as a believer, as a Christian, when you think of biblical justice, you can't just approach justice in terms of one, two, three, four, five rules or bullet points. You have to approach justice by understanding that it is the outpouring of God's character. That if he is just, his children, you, my brothers and sisters, and heirs to his throne ought to approach justice with the same uh, characteristic, right? We ought to live out that same type of justice in our lives. If our father is just in his character, then his children ought to be just in their character. We ought not to reduce justice down to whatever political affiliation that we kind of sway towards, our act of justice needs to be an outpouring of what we see in God's character. You guys get me? Right? So I want to share with you guys what that is. What are they? What are, what are the facets of justice that are seen in the scripture? There's three. Okay? Hang in there. Okay? You guys say, what? Right? Three facets. And, and again, this is instructional in tone because, because the worst thing I see in the church community is a divisiveness that instead of uniting us, breaks us apart. Because one, we refuse to understand what God's justice looked like. And two, we, 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 we rather jump on a bandwagon of what's the loudest narrative out there in the culture. If you are a son and daughter of the living God, my exhortation to you and my rebuke to you is stop listening to the voice of this age and begin to listen to the voice of what God is saying through his word. His word is the final say as revealed in Jesus Christ. His word is what we should bow down in obedience to. So what does the word of God say about justice? What are the facets of justice that we need to understand? The first thing, go to 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 14. 
First Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 14. Some of you are like, Chronicles, where is that? It's somewhere in the Old Testament. First Chronicles, chapter 29, verse 14. Verse 14. Biblical facet of justice. The first facet of justice I want to talk about is this thing called generosity, the giving. Because giving is not just an act of mercy. Giving is an act of justice as well. Let me share with you. First, 29, uh, First Chronicles chapter 29, verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Our culture, our narrative that we have in our culture today understands just generosity like this. Both right and left side understands justice in a very horizontal level. Okay? Meaning that on the left, money is seen as belonging to the state. And therefore, the distribution to the needy will be involuntary. Right? On, 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 the, on the level of the, the left, side, left, side, left side, right, what we see is this conversation saying, there are people out there who need help. Let us gather the money to one place and we as a collective will hand it out as we see fit. And on the other uh, narrative on the right, what we see is money belongs to the individual. It's mine. You can't touch it. And therefore, any type of generosity must be done voluntarily and optional. Right? And wherever you lean on this in our church, I'm going to tell you something. The biblical idea of generosity is more than just one or the other. The biblical idea of generosity is so much more nuanced and full. Because the biblical idea of generosity is this. The primary dimension of giving is vertical, right? The relationship between you and God, that is where the connection of giving happens. Because one, your money is God's provision to you. He has given you stewards over his money. And therefore, no one should confiscate it from you. But on the other hand, you have the moral obligation to God and to your neighbors to use your money unselfishly for the love of others. You see the difference there? It's not reducing it to one or the other. It is both and, not either or. Your money does not belong to you. It is given to you to be stewards of it by God. Let me tell you, therefore, any decision you make with finances is a spiritual decision. It is a deep spiritual decision because it's not your money. It belongs to God. And here's the thing. Because he gives it to you to be stewards of it, no one can just take it from you whenever they want to. But at the same time, he gives it to you with the moral obligation that you will honor him and love people unselfishly, generously with it. Case study. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. God gave a law to his people. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. He gave his law to the people who are, who, um, when they entered to the promised land. And these this group of people, like there are farmers and there are those who were poor because of whatever circumstances that came their way. So he created this picture to show you that there's this thing called the gleaning laws, where if you're poor and you don't have a place to live or you don't have food to eat, there is this welfare system that is given to you that you can go into a place, a farmer's land, and you can glean, which means you can take off of the, the grain or the fruit or whatever they have left behind, and you can take it home, and that will be how you live and survive for that week, that month, that year, whatnot, right? Deuteronomy chapter, 24, verse 20, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19, it says this. When you are harvesting your field and you overlook a sheep, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. There's this law that lays down that, hey, you got to make sure you take, those, take care of those. You have morally obligated to take care of those who cannot, in their situation, take care of themselves. The widows, the orphans, and the foreigners who need a hand of grace to deliver them out of their circumstances. Right? And some of you guys, if you're reading this, you're thinking, oh, PT, Bible tells us that God is a socialist. Right? It's very social. It's just give away things whenever you need. Before we understand that, you know, before we realize that these people can take advantage of these farmers, go to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Look at what God says afterwards, before that. 
Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 24, 25, this is to the people who are gleaning. If you enter your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat all the grapes you want, but do not put any in your basket. If you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but, but you must not pick a, put a sickle to his standing grain. So what we see here, right, is the Bible shows that generosity is not just being nice, but it is a picture of justice. It does not socialize money, but it does not individualize it either. It's both and. So yes, you are obligated by what you have, that's yours, to care for those who are in need. And before you think that, you know, like, oh, they can just take advantage of me and I just have to throw my money away or I'm just, you know, giving it to people who don't do anything with their life, the Bible clearly comes in and says, well, at the same time, if you are receiving this, you can't take a basket, which means you just can't hoard it for yourself and take away everything that people have been working for. You're able to eat. Go in and eat. But eat your fill and then leave. Eat to what you have enough. So what we see here is that our love of God and our love of our neighbors, the believers are willing to disadvantage themselves as business people, as people with finances, as capital, in order to do what? To advantage their community. That's a biblical picture of justice. It's the ability to be generous. And I don't know where you guys stand in our church in terms of where you've reduced your idea of financial givings to, right? Some of you guys are very happy because you, you don't work a single day of your life and you got all this uh, free money that came to your way these past few weeks, right, with the stipends or the stimulus checks. Some of you guys are kind of sad because you pay your, your, your taxes and realize all my taxes are gone because of the stimulus checks, right? And you're wondering, what, like, why is it fair? Is it fair? Is it not fair? Here's a picture, guys. You, as a believer... We're not called to jump to one or the other. You are called to have a biblical concept of your finances. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. You are stewards of it, which means that what? No one can take it from you, but at the same time, you are obligated. Listen, you are obligated morally to use your finances to bless and to help others, to love your community. It's not an optional idea here. That's why tithing is not optional. It is an act of worship that has to be done. It's not like whenever I feel like it or whenever it's good for me, your money is not yours. Our offering to God for the sake of the community and the neighbors, right, is a moral obligation, which he has given to you with his finance. Yes, follow? The first biblical facet of justice I want you guys to see is generosity. That's how you ought to live. That's how you enact justice. Is your life seen as generous? Is your life characteristic that flows from it a picture of generosity? Because what we see in the picture of the cross is a generous God. A generous God, who though his life belongs to him, who's in authority and power could have demanded whatever he want, voluntarily, not optionally, voluntarily decides it is his duty to come and save you, to sacrifice even up to his life for you. Unselfishly, the Bible says in Philippians 2, for you. And so when you begin to approach finances and, 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 your, and, and your money and you reduce it down to one or the other, you've missed the picture of the Bible. Second facet of justice in the Bible. Go to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. We talked about this last week, but let me review it. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. A second facet of biblical justice is equality. Okay? Everybody say equality. Equality, right? The cultural understanding that we have about equality has been really just tainted lately. So what we see in our culture is the rise in critical race theory, right? Where racism is defined by the unbalance of power now. 
perpetuated by a specific race, specifically a white male Christian, against the oppressed minority, which is any other uh, group that feels oppressed by that. And at the, let, me tell, let me, before, I, before I, I, I rag on the critical race theory, at the heart of this theory seeks to give justice to those who have been oppressed through the, through the ages. It, it seeks to say, you know what, let us see what we have done in terms of racism, right? Dismantle the system that has oppressed so many people and rebuild it in a way and give its power and its reign over to those whose voice have been silenced all these years. And I'm not going to lie to you, in terms of theory, in terms of words, it sounds really good. And, it's, and at the heart of it, it sounds very kind and generous, right? But, what, what, but sometimes what we, what we don't realize is that by dismantling a system and cre- recreating it, what you've done is you just switched from those who have been oppressed to now a different oppressor, one after the other. And there's, not, there's never an equality that's there. And that's why we get conversations like, you know, white privilege uh, in, the com- in our, in our, in our um, social media outlets, in our narratives, in our culture today. All critical race theory has done in its fight for justice is move groups up and down or change and exchange groups of one superiority for the other. Biblical justice is this. It's universal equality. The Bible clearly says in the beginning, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Did you know, did you know that the Bible demands that every person be treated according to the same standards and with the same respect regardless of class, race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, or social category? And this, this idea of equality is a very unique idea given only specifically to biblical principles. Actually, biblical idea was so unique and is revolutionary that Romans and Greeks, they didn't think this way back in the days. You guys know that? The Romans and the Greeks, they, they believed that there were some groups and some categories of people who were not equal. They believed that they were not good enough, Right? There, there, are, there are those out there, there are cultures out there who saw no intrinsic value in the poor. They saw no intrinsic value in those who are sick and weak, and they got rid of them. And so this biblical idea that all are made in the image of God, therefore all humanity is equal in intrinsic value, was revolutionary. The biblical approach to equality and justice is that we, we, we actually lay the foundation for what people are fighting for today. Do you guys know that? The majority of what people are fighting, <clears throat> when they fight for equal rights and all those things, where they got that from was from biblical principles. See, as a Christian, you have a, you have a moral grounding of where to, how to fight for that. When you say, I want to fight for equality, why? Because God made every man and woman in the image of God. When you ask a secular person, why are you fighting for equality? They say it's the right thing to do, but where did you get the moral grounds to go about and do that? They don't, because why? Because at the heart of their philosophy and worldview is survival of the fittest, and yet all of a sudden now you have to love and protect and save the rights of others who are weaker than you. There is no grounds there. The Bible assumes equality all over. The Bible says in in Proverbs, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Ancient culture, except for Jews, saw no intrinsic worth and value in the poor and the weak. Jesus, when he showed up to the scene, he blew everybody away. When he showed up to the scene, he blew even his own culture away, right, with his life. What did he do? He set the Samaritans equal to the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans, didn't want anything to do with the Samaritans, wanted to exclude the Samaritans. And Jesus tells two stories where he elevated the Samaritans in the same place as the Jews. They hated him for that. He declared love for the Gentiles. That God loves all humanity, not just the Jews, but the Gentiles. He shared it in the story where he says, Woe to you, for if you were in the days of Elijah, right, and all those widows, it was, not, it was, it was the, the widow of Syria, uh, Syrian who, or the, uh, oh shoot, the Samaritan widow who did what? Who actually gave a drink to Elijah. And it was Naaman the leper from Syria 
that God saved. Not the Jews, not the lepers, the, the Jewish lepers in Jerusalem or in Israel. Jesus comes and he, and he elevates the rest of humanity and he says God loves them too. And they almost uh, stoned him to death for that. He reached out to the social outcasts, the lepers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors. He told his disciples to not only be generous to the poor, but to welcome them into their homes. He says, when you welcome a party into your home, don't just welcome people who's going to pay you back. Put, the, put at the place of honor someone who is not honorable. He sets into motion a plan that alleviates and lifts up poor into their dignity, their worth, and their value. He taught the parable of the Good Samaritan that loving your neighbor is giving practical financial medical aid to someone of different religion and race. And the cross, and the cross of Jesus does what? It levels the playing field across the board. It says that every man, every woman is a sinner saved by grace. So how dare you in your arrogance believe that you are somehow better or more good than another? Jesus showed up to the scene and he blew everybody away. Because what he did was he elevated the equality of all humanity. But in our cultural narrative, our justice seems to be only one deserves justice while the other does not. On either side, we go back and forth trying to create that perfect balance when all along the biblical picture is what? You are made in the image of God. You have been given intrinsic value. You are unique, distinct, created being, unlike any of this created order. And therefore, your life has value. And to be treated as such. So the biblical justice of equality says what? You ought to look at a brother and sister and treat them with equality, regardless of race, gender, ethnicity, sex, social categories. Right? And here's a third. Here's a third one. This is the last one for this part, okay? The third one. So the biblical facets of justice. We got generosity, right? We got um, equality. And the last one is advocacy. Everybody say advocacy. Advocacy. Proverbs chapter 31. Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 to 9. Proverbs chapter 31. Thirty-one verses eight to nine. Proverbs chapter thirty-one verses eight to nine. This is what it says: Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Okay. And so the biblical idea of justice includes this picture of advocacy. It means this. That while we are, all, we are to treat all equally and not show partiality to anyone, we are to have a special concern for the poor, for the weak, and the powerless, those whose voice cannot be heard. We are called to pay close attention to the weak and the poor, seeking to understand the cause of their condition, seeking to understand why they grew up in their place that they grew up, seeking to understand what's going on in their community, their environment. Why is the education system so bad? Why is the healthcare system so bad? Why is the nutrition so bad? Why is the violence so high? We are to come into this place and spend significant time and energy to changing their life situation. We are called to be advocates to those who cannot speak for themselves. The Bible says what? Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves. The Bible understands this, that the world has fallen. I think a lot of times we don't recognize the human condition and we think that somehow this is going to be good. The world is a fallen world. And there is a highly unevil distribution of opportunity and resources. To be born into a privileged family is automatically to have friends, to have connection, to have social capital, to help you along the way. The poor does not have that. They don't. Children born in neighborhoods usually grow up with, uh, children born in poor neighborhoods usually grow up with inferior schooling in an environment detrimental to learning, right? If you're a conservative right, you would say what? That's the parents' fault. They didn't make good decisions. If you're a liberal left, you would say what? Social policies kept them in that cycle. 
but nobody believes it's the child's fault, right? The child had no one to send to speak for them. They had no friend to open doors for them. Do you know the Sixth Commandment? Anybody know the Sixth Commandment? Six, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not kill, right? right? In, the, in the Westminster Larger Catechism, it's, it's not just about physically killing, and you know Jesus talked about you know, having anger in your heart, but the Sixth Commandment is extended, it's extended to mean that we are not to allow conditions to undermine the safety and the bodily well-being of any of our neighbors. We are not to allow conditions that undermine the safety and well-being of our neighbors. If you do that, you are breaking the sixth commandment. Did you guys realize that? If you put people in a position that undermines their safety and their well-being, you've broken the sixth commandment. You've just as much killed them as anything. It means not ignoring neighborhoods with dangerous environmental factors like violence and gangs. It means to not ignore neighborhoods that have terrible health care. It means not to ignore neighborhoods with inadequate nutrition. God, guys, is the greatest advocate for the cause of the needy, and he calls his people to do the same. You guys follow me? It's not reducing it down to one way or the other. The biblical picture of it is nuanced, and it takes deeply into the human condition that's going on. How do we to advocate in the Bible? All right? You guys want to take notes on how to do this. It's real fast. One, according to the Bible, how do you advocate for people? One, the story of the Good Samaritan. What do we see? Direct relief to meet their needs. Money, medical, financial, resources that they need to face a crisis. Direct relief is a great way to meet and advocate for someone. But two, Deuteronomy chapter 15. Let's go there real fast. Let me show it to you guys. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 13 to 14. We've been, you guys like, like, why are we in the Old Testament so much? I've been in the Old Testament a lot because we've been doing this thing in uh, TGIF. We've been going through the Old Testament, so I've been hanging out there for a little bit. And there's so many things in here that I, that I don't even remember is in here. And I was like, wow, this is, that's in there. I was like, that's pretty cool. Chapter 15, verses 13 to 14. Check this out. This is when you free your servants, when you let them go, Okay. When you let your servants go, they, pay, they paid off their debt. They have nothing left. What does God say? Good luck. You're on your own. Survive? No. He says, empower them to be self-sufficient. Verse 13 and 14 says this. And when you release him, your servant, do not send him away empty-handed. Supply him liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your winepress. Give to him as the Lord your God has blessed you. How do you advocate for someone? You empower them. Helping a person's family or community gain self-sufficiency so that they don't need a voice to advocate for them. So they are free from that advocacy, right? You know, in our country, we have this beautiful thing called a welfare system. And I think at the heart of that, in the beginning stages of it, at the deep love nature of it, was to do what? Was there is a growing area of poverty that we need to send in help to lift them out so that they could be self-sufficient. I am a child of welfare. Um, some of you guys are, I lived off food stamps growing up, you know. I thought they were so cool, right. There was like these little packets and there's like really cool pictures and there were just numbers on them. And then my mom would take them to the supermarket and use them as money. I'm like, wow, can I use them? And she, and she always tells me, don't touch this. This is just as great as money, right. And it was to do what? It was to provide a position so that we can be self-sufficient later on, right. But it ended up happening what? At the, without taking into consideration the human condition, which is we are selfish, we begin to live off of the system, being stuck in it, never getting out of it. And yet the scripture principle is very clear in this. You are to provide means to help, and you are to also empower for self-sufficiency. But thirdly, thirdly, check this out. Go to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verses 8 through 11. Is this helpful? I hope this is helpful. Right? I hope this is helpful for you guys. One of, uh, one of our sisters, um, last week, she just, uh, she just confessed to me today that she uh, fell asleep during service while I was preaching my heart out. You know? So if you're falling asleep, this is good stuff. It's all applicable today. First Timothy chapter 1, 
verses 8 to 11. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. How can we help advocate for the voices of those who cannot speak? Uh, cannot speak? Chapter 1, verse 8 through 11. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers or for murderers, for adulterers, for perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And what, what we see here is that to advocate is to take on structures that disadvantage certain groups. Do you know what the Bible clearly tells you here? It says, the law is against what? Slave traders, right? We are not meant to slave trade in slavery here. Man stealing in slavery is not something that, God, that Paul forbids believers to do. That was a structure that was called for Christians to step into and say, no, we're not going to be a part of it. So to advocate means that you are one to help give direct relief to those who are in need, medical, financial, other resources, to face whatever crisis that they're going through. Two, you advocate by empowering them to be self-sufficient, not letting them be caught in the cycle of needing a handout. But the third time, we advocate for them by taking on structures that has been set up that has disadvantaged certain groups. You see the difference here? It's not right or left. It's a complete picture of justice that each side tries to grab from but it misses the bigger view, the bigger context. Okay? So, biblical facets of justice. We see generosity. Everybody say generosity. We see equality. Everybody say equality. And we see advocacy. Everybody say advocacy. All right? And the question here is this. How do we live this out, PT? All right? How are we to live out the biblical justice? Now, this is a pastoral advice I'm going to give you. Okay? Um, Pastoral advice meanings that it's an advice, okay? Let's do our best to figure out. If you have a better advice, let me know, okay? This is pastoral advice that I kind of thought about for a while, and I want to kind of lay it down for you, okay? First, how do we live this out? You got to have clear, you got to be a clear witness. We don't just do justice as a believer for the sake of justice. We do justice for the sake of the gospel and the gospel's sake. We do justice for the sake of Christ for the name of Christ, for his kingdom, and for his gospel. You guys get me? Justice is not simply done because it's just justice, though you ought to do it. But when you do it, you have to be a clear witness of why you are doing it. It means this. To be a clear witness, it means you need to listen humbly. No one respects a Christian if all we do is denounce those who disagree with us. Right? How many times did you see on our social media pages people just all like crazy, right? It's like I'm watching a battle of wars here. Like one side is like saying all these things and the other side is saying this thing. And, and the funny part is they're both believers. I'm like, what am I, what, what am I, I failed you guys as a pastor completely, right? Then instead of actually listening, all we do is we jump to denouncing. See, if we are to correct, and we should correct, by the way, if we are to correct, we ought to do it gently, the Bible says. If we do nothing but argue and despise opponents, we miss the opportunity for the gospel to be there. You guys get me? We have to be a clear witness as we stand for justice. And the witness that we are to call for is the witness of Christ and the gospel. To be a clear witness, it means not have the church be tied down to one or more political parties and leaders. Let me say that one more time, just in case you guys missed that. It means that the church should not be tied down to one or more political parties and leaders, or else the church is nothing more than a political block to be used at whatever whims. You guys get me? The church is not one or the other here. And as a community, that's why I've, I've never told you how I voted, right? If you asked me, I probably told you how I voted, right? But I never publicly proclaimed it. I never told you which way we go as a community, the only thing I seek is that you follow after God's word. To me, you can be right or left, you can vote either side and still be a faithful believer. 
if you, as long as you're not completely aligning yourself to either right or left, but that your heart and your life is to seek for God's truth to be proclaimed in those areas. When a church does that, and I'm not going to lie, our church has done that, right? When our church has done that, all we've become is a political tool. How do we give clear witness? Respectfully point out the problems of secular views of justice. A lot of people say, this is the way it should be. This is how you should enact justice, or this is how you should enact justice. You can point it out, right? You want to care for the poor? Awesome. So do I. But why do you want to care for the poor? Because they're oppressed. I agree, right? But why do you care for the oppressed? Because they need help. I agree, right? But why do you think they need help? Because they're humans. I agree. Genesis 127 tells me we're all made in the image of God. But what does humanity mean to you? Because if I'm not mistaken, the secular view of justice or where the, the origination of their view or the origination of your secular worldview is that you believe that we're all just here by accident, that we're here because of one adapting better than the other. So why fight for the poor? Why fight for the Greeks? And why, for the weeks, right? Why not be like the Romans and the Greeks and see some class of people as less valuable than others? Where do you get your grounds to fight for your justice? As a Christian, I'll tell you my grounds. It comes from a God who's made humanity in his image. Therefore, every human being from the moment of conception forward is uniquely, intrinsically valuable and worthy. Why do you fight for justice? So one, we have to give clear witness of who our God is. But secondly, and this, and this is really hard because I haven't done this, so I need you guys to like help me with this, okay? Right? But I think it's wise. I think it's wise, okay? It's going locally in our act for justice, okay? We should work more locally than nationally when it comes to justice matters. You know, you know what I'm saying? Because in the national schemes, I'm not going to lie, I watch a lot of news, and it's not good for your heart or your soul or your anything, right? I watch a lot of these things, and what I begin to sort of kind of comprehend is that no matter what, no one's changing their minds anymore. No one, like everyone says they're open, but no one's actually really changing their mind in the national scheme of things, right? But what I do know is on a local level, I can walk across the street to Orange Intermediate School here, and I can work with them. And it doesn't matter if I'm a believer or not believer, I can, I can cross whatever line. And if there's a specific end, as in taking care of the kids who are poor, who need actual help, guess what? They'll do it with the church. And guess what? We did do it with the church, right? We built a whole entire pantry for them. They just still use to this day. I think working in a local manner is better. That's why it, it, it kind of stirs my heart. I, I know that when you post on, online, you're trying to draw attention to the matter at hand on a national level. But my thing is this. If, you, if you're willing to go locally, I'm willing to go locally with you, right? If you're willing not just, just to talk about let's help this community, but actually you help me to help you to help me go out and help the community, I'll do it. I will. I will put the full heart of the church behind you. But the worst thing that we can do as a witness for God is to declare all these things, make our standpoint, our, our grounds, and just virtual signal as best we can, and do nothing about it. And say, you know what, it's, and just blame the national level. It's because of the politicians. They can't decide what to do. It's fine. Leave it them, right? But your local community, you can help. You can help your schools. You can help your community, you can help your neighborhoods. But you got to help me, because if you see it better than I do, that's why we have the church, it's so that you can see things that I can't see, right? And if you're willing to step into that, I'm willing to take the whole weight of the church to come alongside and do that too, right? So we're going to talk or we're going to do something. How do we live it out? Be a clear witness and go locally, okay? That's, 
as pastoral advice as I can give. But here's, my, here's, here's the heart of this, okay? The way you live it out, the way you have the heart to live it out, the way you have the resource and the power to step into this fray, into this conversation, into this narrative and do this, we have a resource. We have a power. Who is it? Jesus. And in the heart of the gospel is a resource and a power that does us how. The gospel tells us that our Savior has authority. Right? We reckon, let me tell you this, okay? You cannot do justice without recognizing how power has been used to exploit and abuse it. But you cannot do justice without exerting power as well. You guys get me? You cannot do justice without recognizing how power has been exploited and abused. But at the same time, you cannot do justice without exerting power. And at the heart of the gospel is our Savior who has power, who has authority over us, but uses that power and authority to exert that power in a way to do what? To serve us. Not to exploit us. Not to abuse us, but to serve us, to sacrifice for us, to lose his life, to disadvantage himself for the sake of humanity. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We have at the heart of the gospel both the intellectual and the heart resources to use power in a way that does not exploit or abuse. Do you realize that? So why do you reduce your view of justice to right or left? They're not wrong, but they're not complete. My argument is simply that in this word, in this picture of the Bible declaring justice, it is a comprehensive and complete picture that takes into consideration the human condition, whose power and whose authority flows from God's character himself, who fights for the reparation of those who have been victimized and who declares retribution on those who have oppressed others. And in that justice, we, as his children, as his heirs, as those who declare Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, ought to live out that character in this world. Live out justice, church, but live out biblical justice. I believe that if you were able to do that, we can change the world, right? But let's not think about changing the world. That's kind of too big. Let's just change our community. Let's just change our neighborhood, right? Let's just change our schools, right? Let's start there. Let's pray.